the wrestling 20 years ago podcast my name is eric landstrom and through illness and death and rain and sleet and heat we're here to bring you the second part of our may 2002 volume of the show i'm joined today by our good friend adam joyce to discuss basically everything that happens between the uh the the, the plane ride from hell as it's become uh, known just in the last few weeks that the gentleman will have covered earlier in the month uh, through all the happenings of Judgment Day and beyond. Maybe a morose uh, tone at some points during today's show, but that's why I've brought with us uh, one of the funnier members of the wrestling uh, 20 years ago universe. Uh, Adam, how are you today, sir? Uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sort of looking forward to covering this one. This, is a, this has been an interesting month. I mean, this whole year, I, when I sort of, sort of look at some of the years that we've covered on this there's been certain years that you sort of look at as transition years. You could argue that 93 to 94, there was a big transition there, the same end of 96 through 97. And I think here in 2002, we've got, we're doing a very big transition because going from the Attitude Era and the Monday Night Wars to something else. So uh, this, the fact that, that we've got the name change this month, making this the first WWE episode ever, um, is it just sort of sums up that we are here in another big sort of transition year, which we're covering for you live here in the 20 years ago podcast. Um, yeah, we're, we're, really sort of, I'm really sort yeah. of looking forward to sort of seeing where, where this, where this year goes. Cause I mean, obviously 90, the night, the early nineties one wasn't great. The late nineties one was a bit, this big explosion. So where's the, this early two thousands one going to be sort of heading Maybe somewhere in the middle. Right. It's. It, I mean, I think without question, uh, we're in a massive transitional period here. And I think uh, you'll you'll see that and you'll hear that as we go along, uh, especially with this month. It's, it's it's one of those months where as I was putting the show together and I was reading through the torch and I was uh, reading through all the you know news and watching the shows and going back and keeping track and making notes it was one of those things where it was like god first of all i'm really happy we did the plane ride incident and the the british pay-per-view as a separate volume because otherwise we'd be looking at a four four and a half hour volume here but then even even covering the things that happened after that first week of may or so through the end of the month like this is one of those months where we did folks have to trim a lot of fat out, out of uh, what we're going to be covering here. So I do recommend that if you're really interested, especially in the stuff going on behind the scenes, a lot of little things here and there, a lot of ratings talk, a lot of talk about, you know, shake up in management and shake up in creative direction and that sort of thing. A lot of stuff that that's happening that seems to be bubbling, uh, but not a lot of things with with definitive 
resolution or definitive direction. But yeah, the, the WWE, as it's now known, and Adam, we're going to have to get used to that. I may just call it the Fed, frankly. Um, you know, we covered the things that Adam and I kind of judged the most important and definitive for the month. But to say that June, July, August, September, you know, shows, uh, there's a lot of things happening right now that are going to be resolved over that that period of time. I would imagine, or at least follow up things like, and we're going to mention this, like Goldberg coming in, but there's other free agents. There's a lot of things, weird stuff happening behind the scenes. Just stay tuned to, to, to where you are here and now over the next few months, because as Adam says, we're in a massive transitional period here. And we're just going to whet your appetite for what we think might be coming down the line, uh, what, what's proving to shape up to be an interesting summer. Um, but as we said, Adam, uh, we just have a couple of uh, a couple of big ticket news items here. And one thing I like to do, you know, I'm, I'm one of the historical uh, representatives of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago show, uh, one of the archivists, as we will, of wrestling history, maybe the the Jim Cornette or Jim Ross of the show in a lot of ways. Uh, but, you know, I always like to point out when when historical figures uh, from our past have have passed away this month. And as we get into the news, unfortunately, we have uh, I think we have, well, four four to touch on. And then at the end of the at the end of the show, we're going to touch on the big one, uh, sadly. But, Adam, why don't you kick us off with the news? Let's talk about death. Yes. And unfortunately, The Undertaker, uh, nowhere to be found here. Maybe fortunately for old Mr. Calloway, but not for the following folks. We start with Lou Fez, six-time NWA world champion uh, who debuted in the 1930s and wrestled into the 1980s. Uh, he died of heart failure, and this was actually on April 28th, uh, but the news didn't hit our team. And I think maybe we'd even gone to recording uh, for the April volume uh, before the, uh, the the news of uh, Lou Fez's passing uh, would have uh, uh, made circulation. Uh, Thez, who wrestled in the main event of the first $100,000 gate in U.S. wrestling history, was uh, more recently a noted critic of Vince McMahon and the Fed. You'll notice that the Fed, I don't believe, mentioned Lou Thez's death anywhere on television uh, in April or May. Um, Thez, uh, who uh, wrestled, uh, like I said, into the 80s, lost the NWA world title for the last time on January 7, 1966, to Gene Konitsky. Uh, sadly, uh, Less timely, uh, Randy Anderson, you may remember him as a referee for WCW or older listeners, JCP in Mid-South and elsewhere, died May 5th at just age 42. Anderson had battled cancer for six years. Gosh, I didn't realize it had been that long, which caused him to step away from officiating in the in 1999. And, you know, that's interesting. We did all of the end of WCW and I don't know that we were so keen to note that Randy Anderson was not there for the end of that uh, the end of that operation. Anderson was perhaps best known to current audiences as the referee fired in front of his family by Eric Bischoff for awarding the tag titles to the Steiners in January 1997. And I think most of our contributors and listeners would agree that Randy Anderson was just trying to save WCW by finally paying off that storyline, which never fucking ended. Not to make light of death, uh, but uh, more of it here. Uh, Eric Kulis, uh, you might know him as Mass Transit. Uh, he died uh, very prematurely at only age 23 on the 12th of May. Uh, Kulis, uh, effectively known exclusively for the November 1996 incident where he was bladed by New Jack after forging his credentials and allowed to wrestle at only age 17, was reported to suffer from obesity-related problems. Uh, these may have contributed to his untimely demise, but I will say uh, his family is being tight-lipped about the actual cause of death. And we have one more here to cover in this intro period. 
the intro portion. Now, we also lost Big Dick Dudley, uh, named Alexander Rizzo, on May 16th. Dudley, who was half-brother to Devon and Bubba Ray, uh, was sired in Dudleyville by Big Daddy Dudley in approximately 1968. Uh, his real-life Electra, yeah, that one. Did you know that uh, Big Dick and Electra were together, Joycey? Um, I think I, that did come up. I did the um, obituary on the on the on the on the twenty YRS forums. Uh, so I believe that did come up when I sort of typed it up. Yeah, uh, talk about uh, batting out of your league, man. Uh, Electra said that they were they were separated by the time of the death. Uh, said that Rizzo had been suffering from painkiller abuse, which led to his premature kidney failure. Uh, perhaps uh, related in the last few years, Rizzo had been in four auto accidents, which definitely contributed to his pain and need for painkiller uh, medication. Uh, our, morose, uh, our morose May will continue, and we'll close the show with an extended discussion of one more tragic passing from May that I'm sure by now all of you have heard of, that of the British bulldog, Davy Boy Smith. Goldberg, but with polka dots? I couldn't help myself. Uh, Bill Goldberg, I remember him, reached a settlement with AOL Time Warner on his remaining wrestling contract last month. And as of May, Big Bill's a free agent. He was the last wrestler with a Time Warner contract and negotiated a dollar-for-dollar buyout with the conglomerate, who was eager to clear its books of all evidence that it was ever affiliated with WCW. Kurt Angle may be the fastest to ever learn in-ring. Goldberg might be the fastest ever to learn out of the ring. Goldberg will certainly be a target of the Fed, who has seen declining ratings since the end of the invasion, and faces uncertainty with Steve Austin and The Rock looking outside the company for more opportunities. Uh, Adam, let's stop here because we're about to hit a big piece of news that I think you and I are probably going to spend a couple minutes on at least, but... Anything on the passings that we've mentioned or the potential arriving of Goldberg before we talk about the uh, the big piece of news this month that doesn't deal with any person dying? Um, I mean, you obviously got um, a couple of big names there that, that have gone with, with Luthers and the Bulldog, obviously. Uh, Wahoo was, was also quite a big big name who's also gone this month. Um, oh, I, I did overlook Wahoo. Uh, Chris Lacey's... You know, uh, favorite wrestler, I believe. Did he? May, he may have passed away in April, but again, like Luthez, I think news didn't hit the the shores as they say until early May. But yeah, that's another one to mention for sure. It's certainly an interesting sort of cross section of, of people who've done that. Uh, Eric Kulas was obviously, I I'd say it was kind of surprising, but it's not really a name you sort of think about other because other than that one show with ECW, no one's really sort of seen anything from the guy he's apparently that was about like his third match so he had had some level of training uh albeit not as much as he claimed to have had um so uh luthes was that that's a big if it wasn't for you know the like the bulldog who we're going to go into later luthes would be a, would probably have been the biggest one on that list um yeah. I think the last time I sort of saw Luthez involved in anything was the Bad Blood pay per view when they were honoring all the legends. And right, he, right, with him and with Sam Munchnik there as well, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was like one of the last times Sam Munchnik was seen in, in public, and you also had uh, the Funks and 
I'll find Russia that. Probably was there. Yeah. No, I think the no, it didn't the, wasn't the Crusher when they did the Milwaukee pay per view. Oh, you're probably right. And all those Midwest, yeah. all those Midwest territorial guys, you know, hard to keep track yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just saying that you know that that wasn't that long. That was what less than five years ago, and Lou looked in looked in better shape than than a couple of the guys on the roster at the time. So it's actually <laughs> So even though he was sort of, you know, quite up there in age, it is still quite st- stunning that he's gone. He's one, of, he's one of those names who you sort of think, you know, is, is going to live forever, just looking at the way he looked there. Um, well, and, and I think the interesting thing is, you know, we talk about Luthez and we talk about Eric Kulis in the same month. And, and I don't know if any two people represent the spectrum of people that have ever been involved in pro wrestling. I mean, we have Luthez, who's basically in-ring royalty, the first kind of the first... Uh, well, one of the first real notable NWA world champions, you know, maybe one of the first modern champions. I'm not sure. Definitely bridge the gap between your Farmer Burns and your Strangler Lewis's to your Buddy Rogers's and your, you know, Dory Funks and your Ric Flair's for sure. I think that's fair to say. Um, well, but then you look at a guy like Eric. Go ahead. I was just saying from, from doing the obituary that I typed up, he was, I believe it's the second National Wrestling Alliance champion. And he was which he unified with the National Wrestling Association belt. So whenever WCW says it goes back to 1908 or whatever, it's because it's because of that unification. Because right. the NWA right. title, as we recognize it, is from 1948. Um, and yeah, so. Um, but yes, he, yeah, he was one of the fir- first NWA champions. Um, for, and he unified. I, uh, without my notes in front of me, but it was like five or six different titles that claimed to be the world title to become what we now re- recognize as the NWA World uh, Heavyweight Champion. Um, right, and then and you look at someone like Eric Kulis, who kind of the only a tragic story. I mean, only known for one thing, kind of a halfway between a joke and a tragic character, depending on who you talk to. You know, only wrestled really one time at a notable level at age 17, dead by 23. And we're only talking about him because we covered ECW so extensively. And that was a big story. And and here he is just, you know, really gone before he ever really had a chance to to live his life. And I just think it really is interesting to show kind of the spectrum of, you know, what pro wrestling can represent and mean to people. And you have Luthez, who's basically the... Uh, the Bill Russell of professional wrestling, and Eric Kulis, who, you know, really never even got off his high school basketball team's bench, but just happened to be be notable. You know, really quickly, uh, Joyce, you know, talk about Goldberg. Do you think he's got a chance here in the Fed? Do you think he's going to come in and, and main event? Or do you think Vince is going to turn him into another one of these dog and pony show wrestlers from, you know, from Atlanta who needs to be taught the, the, the Fed way? One notable thing about WCW in 1998 and the Fed as it is right now is the roster depth. The Fed arguably have more name. Um, well, I mean, pushing it to call some of the guys' names, but they have more people on TV regularly, whereas WCW, although they didn't have an, as many na- as many regular on TV, they had a they had like 200 wrestlers, which meant you could easily set someone up for a Goldberg-like streak. It's a case of are they are the Fed going to be able to do something like that 
when you know they only have like a third or a quarter of what WCW had going on back in the day. You know, there's only so many lower carders he's going to run through before he starts hitting um, hitting a ceiling, and it's a case of well, out of the main eventers, who's going to be prepared to you know job to the guy from WCW? Man, yeah. I uh... <laughs> we've we've seen this movie a whole bunch before, and. I look at guys like Austin and Undertaker and some of these people who have been hesitant to lose to the homegrown, you know, so so to speak, homegrown guys. You know, even the Austin refusing to even do a program with Jared, you know, who's a respectable guy. This Goldberg, who not really a wrestler. I mean, he is, but he's not. And he, he got shot to the moon and he was immediately political. And I don't believe he made many friends backstage. And, you know, had that big dust up with Jericho, who's now in the Fed with a little bit of stroke. Can you see somebody like Triple H wanting to do business with Goldberg? Like, ah, unless the paydays are just out of this world and and or there's going to be some business to be done where both sides come together and say, okay, Undertaker, okay, Triple H, okay, Goldberg. Like, y'all are going to have to lose to each other from time to time to make this work. I I don't know, like, can we get Goldberg-Austin? Maybe, but Austin's not losing that match. Forget that. You know, it's the biggest star in the history of the company other than Hogan. You know, Austin's not going to lose to Goldberg. Rock's probably not going to lose to Goldberg, or if he does, it's going to be some shenanigans. Are we going to get a heel gold? Are we going to get heel Goldberg? I I just, I I guess my point here, Adam, and I'll turn it over to you, like, I'm at this point so pessimistic about seeing how this can work at all. Well, I mean, I think out of all the main events, Rock is the most likely to to lose to Goldberg. He's when it comes to losing to people he thinks are worthy, he seems to have the best track record. You look at like the matches he put on with Jericho, um, you know, up um, he he lost to Jericho on something like three or four pay per views in the last in the last year. Not necessarily cleanly, but they were great matches, and Jericho looked great in all of them. Uh, which is which is a sign that you know if Rock thinks you're of a certain level, he's, he'll be prepared to put you over. I mean, but with Austin, that's uh, that's pushing it with someone like Triple H. I really I really don't see it, especially after recently losing to Hogan. Um, and then yeah, you go down the list, and it just gets further and further. Um, yeah, it's it's a case of you know what after that rock match, where's he going to go? Is you know is any maybe someone is prepared to put him over, but it's going to be possible. It's going to be harken back to the title reign in WCW, where he's only where the person's only losing to him, so he can lose the belt back to them. Right, it's, uh, right, or 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 he's having a a Bret Hart '92 style run where he's a champion, but he's facing the Mountie and Virgil, and you know not the top guys because the top guys don't want anything to do with this guy that they don't really feel like is of their their caliber. I'm just, I mean, I I've expressed optimism over the course of this show, and that has changed to cautious optimism, and now. I just, I don't know. I, I don't see, as much as you would think that Goldberg would be Vince McMahon's wet dream, 
Man, that's it's interesting. Well, we have one more uh, big news headline here uh, that I think has probably been beaten over the head with everybody uh, of everybody who's watched uh, the WWE uh, over the last uh, month or so. But uh, Adam, just in case, so we have one or two folks emerging from under that uh, boulder they've been living under for the last uh, little while. Why don't you hit us with our, our last headline here, and we'll jump into some legal news, which I know is why everybody turns into the uh, tunes into the Eric-hosted versions of uh, volumes of the uh, podcast here. Get the F out. The WWF is no more. The lawsuit we've been keeping you apprised of over the last many months and years between the World Wildlife Fund and the World Wrestling Federation was ruled on in a British courtroom this month. The companies existed simultaneously without issue after an agreement in the early 1990s, which apparently set out ground rules for use of the WWF moniker for the Fed for wrestling purposes, as the fund had prior use rights for the WWF letters back to 1961. However, this early 90s agreement did not contemplate uh, digital or international use or digital international use of the WWF mark for wrestling in a post-digital internet world. The fund, and I strongly speculate this to be the case, not wanting to be affiliated with the edgier attitudinal content of the last few years, decided to enforce its IP rights for exclusive global use of the WWF uh, brand. The British court has now issued a, an injunction which prevents the Fed from using the WWF brand whatsoever. Now, an injunction is basically a, uh, an initial ruling that can be uh, pursued uh, to a final judgment. But the Fed, uh, probably sensing that it was not going to be successful if it continued to pursue litigation to regain the rights to use the WWF for wrestling purposes on a global level, elected to change its name to World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE. So for all of us getting who've gotten so used to saying WWF, and for all of us whose grandmothers say, when we're watching WCW or ECW, is that that WWF stuff? Uh, no, Grandma, that's WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment. And Adam, amongst other things, uh, how much do you think that Vince McMahon contemplated not even having the world the word wrestling in his uh, rebranded uh, corporate name we probably would have had world sports entertainment if he had uh, his uh, druthers but at least they kept the world wrestling the word wrestling in their name and now we have the WWE Adam, I don't think that quite rolls off the tongue as much, but maybe I'm just biased because it's been the WWF really as long as I've been alive. I mean, I've, I'm not surprised that Vince kept the wrestling in, believe it or not. Um, I know he doesn't really care for the word, but it is still to a degree a wrestling company. I, I mean, I as much as I, I love Jim Cornette, when he says that there isn't really any modern wrestling anymore, I sort of think there you still there's still some good guys in in the Fed right now, and you know the guys that you're training are coming through. And do we remember? Uh, I think it was the end of 2000 when when this was actually first brought up. Uh, how Vince started referring to the WWF as World Wrestling Federation Entertainment. Um, I can honestly well, that's say stock, I, that's their that's their public. Um, 
that's their stock uh, ticket. Uh, I'm not a, a trader, but that's what's represented on the uh, New York Stock Exchange, I believe, is WWFE. Yeah, but um, if you look at some of the raw tapings from like December 2000, which is about the point this lawsuit originally came up, um, ignoring the 1992 thing, but that that was settled and this is, I believe, something different. Um, that is the first time it was actually mentioned. Um, that yeah, that's the first time they actually tried referring to it on screen as WWFE, which is. I'm kind of glad that it didn't stick because I, I, while I know some people hate the three year letters for all, like ABC Wrestling or whatever, it does roll off the tongue a lot easier. I mean, they've, I think they've done the most sensible thing they can do with it in, in keeping it as close to what it was while still being within the realms of of being different enough that the court's going to let it slide. Um, before I actually go down too far down this show, I just out of interest, do we know sort of how much notice was given to this? Because this, because there was originally a ruling, I believe, a month or six weeks before this, um, that they actually, because I believe this was an outcome of an appeal. Was there how far ahead of thing, times did they know that they were going to have to change the name? given that, you know, they've only recently just got, like, a brand-new heavyweight title, which, as of this taping, still says WWF on it, if you if you look on any of their programming, as do all their other title belts. Yeah, too bad we don't have Kerry Von Eric to turn that F into an E using some sort of key or something, just scratch it into the belt. I, I suspect they've known about this for, uh, about the possibility of this for quite some time, because they were ready to jump with the whole campaign, with Get the F Out, with the new marketing, with new branding, with new everything. I mean, everything was up to date uh, as of the end of the month. And so even though I think that they were fighting it and fighting it and fighting it, you know, in with big cases like this, you oftentimes, a- along the course of the litigation, even before you get to a final judgment or a final ruling, or in this case, in, uh, kind of an interim, even though it wasn't a temporary injunction, kind of an interim ruling that could have been further pursued, but in the lead up to that, I suspect it's been quite some time that the the, the Fed, as I'm just going to call it for clarity, um, has uh, known that this was a strong possibility that could happen. Uh, probably, like you said, probably since that, you know, when this started heating up again, uh, 2000 or thereabouts. The, again, the fact that they were ready to jump with this ad campaign with Get the F Out with all the new stuff, I mean, that doesn't happen overnight especially not for a publicly traded, you know, billion dollar company. So they may have hoped and they may have thought, well, we can hang on to this for a while and we're going to be the WWF for as long as possible. But the fact that they were ready, to, just ready to go with all of this in the same month that the injunction came out, I strongly suspect that they knew that this change was coming. And, it, it, you know, this is strictly speculation on my part, but I'm wondering that even had this injunction not gone the same way and if the litigation had continued if they hadn't at some point just voluntarily changed the name anyway because i don't think in reading through all the agreements and the prior use stuff and how all this was was supposed to go i i didn't see a path to how the wwf for wrestling was going to be able to sustain in light of this pushback from the the world wildlife fund so I, i think they had probably a good 18 months heads up on this and then i think in the last month they probably said okay let's put it all in a month or two 
let's put it all into place. Let's get it going because we know as soon as this injunction comes down, uh, that we're going to have to move quickly. They they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to go on screen and still call themselves a WWF after this ruling. So they need to be ready to change, basically as of the ruling, unless there was a grace period built in, which usually is not the case. So uh, quite some time they were ready to go, and they were ready to go with a great ad campaign. I mean, just incredible PR campaign. Get the f out the commercials. Just you know, the WWE, the Fed again at the 11th hour, pulling a rabbit out of its ass to come out kind of like the the face out of all of this. You know, we were the WWF. We entertain you. We bring you family entertainment. You know, the worldwide leader in sports entertainment for 50 years, that kind of thing. And now these fucking pandas come in and they want to rip you of your WWF wrestling. Well, hell, we're going to come out with this awesome ad campaign. Get the F out. It's totally great. And, you know, it's just interesting to me that they to bring it all back that they had this all in their pocket and were ready to go but that it also is like a rare i think perfect execution of an idea from the from the fed which we haven't seen very often but you know they they've clearly known about this a while because they had a perfect response to it it's just part of the reason i sort of ask is because um, as we're going to cover you know come come the faith view one of the big stories in this one of the build-up angles that was done for it involved a couple of new t-shirts being issued literally the week before the name change so those t-shirts um and i actually went to the effort of doing like a freeze frame on one of the promos after the name change they haven't changed the t-shirt so it's a case of they knew this was coming they announced this big change and and yeah, something, and still, you know, they went ahead with the old branding. It's all, it, to me, that kind of felt like they were trying, kind of hoping for the best. I, I don't, or maybe, uh, you know, just a, just a bit of arrogance on, on someone's part there. Well, and it's just about timing too. I mean, it, you know, the t-shirt department isn't necessarily going to be looped into what the legal department is doing, isn't necessarily going to be looped into what the ring skirts are going to look like or what the banners are going to look like. I mean, if they have a t-shirt that's in production for six months or so, I mean, that that may not, not necessarily make the cut. But I think what's important is that they didn't advertise it as a WWF t-shirt and you can't see the WWF logo as it exists, as I think, as we were talking about, kind of as a small icon somewhere on the shirt right so one of the ones i'm the kurt angle one um it is quite large there at the top when he yeah. when he turns around on his uh on his left shoulder that's a good um, point oh well, yeah that's a good point i mean so that definitely i mean that's a little bit of a back into the left back into the left you know we could zapruder this maybe and, and figure out you know who knew i i think the point is i think the top level people knew and I don't know if it was even worth it to to say, well, we're not going to this T-shirt angle with Kurt Angle. Go figure. Um, because we have this pending name change. Uh, but I, I, there's no way that there's no way that this was not known to the highest of high level people for for months and months and months. I just wonder if they didn't bother changing any of the kind of little stuff um, until the the ruling came down. Uh, I mean, it's not it's not so strictly enforced that if they show a T-shirt on on you know, after the injunction comes down that has the WWF logo, the you know, they're going to pull the plug on the entire 
uh, national network or anything like that, but it is um, uh, a big deal as far as a, a, an overall branding uh, perspective. And I think it's interesting because, you know, this is not the hot commodity that it was a year or two years ago. I mean, they're changing their name and they're asking their you know people to be loyal uh, and, and not confused, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but it kind of is at a time where viewership is way down and people are kind of jumping off of the wrestling boom. And I think we're, you know, maybe not, or maybe we're just, you know, stagnant right now. And maybe we're headed towards a, a wrestling bust or, or maybe we're headed to another bubble, but, or another boom. But, you know, this, this doesn't help things, even though the, I think the WWE did a really good job in uh, coming out the, the face of this dispute, or at least making people know like, Hey, we're getting the F out. And this is just what it is. And then it's really interesting. Take a drink every time somebody calls it the WWF on on commentary or on the mic. It's it's, it's interesting and awkward. And they, they call it out every single time. So it is clearly on their mind that you can't not call this company the WWF anymore. And, of course, uh, because I'm the most prepared host of all time, I didn't ask you ahead of time if you have the results ready. But the first... Uh, pay-per-view in the W in the history of the WWE Judgment Day, and uh, I'll give you some uh, stats on the show while Adam uh, pulls up the results. This was uh, May 19 of the year uh, 2002 that we're currently in Nashville, Tennessee, at the Gaylord Event Center. This is a center with an 18,000 capacity thereabouts for wrestling, 14,521 in attendance, so not bad. And before the show, we had uh, Regal uh, defeat D'Lo Brown to retain the European title. And uh, as we go live here, uh, we'll have the following uh, results for you uh, on the show. The show opened with Eddie Guerrero successfully defending the Intercontinental Championship against Rob Van Dam. Then Trish Stratus successfully defended the women's title against Stacey Keebler. Uh, Trish had Barbara Ray Dudley in her corner and Stacey had Batista and Reverend Devon. And hers. Uh, then Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman defeated the Hardy Boys in a tag match. Stone Cold Steve Austin defeated The Big Show and Ric Flair in a handicap match. Edge defeated Kurt Angle in a hair versus hair match. Then on top of the Hell in a Cell, which we will go into, Triple H defeated Chris Jericho. Rikishi won the tag team titles with his mystery partner who turned out to be Rico. The stylist of former champions, Billy and Chuck. And in the main event, The Undertaker defeated Hollywood Hogan without the help of Ric Flair. Got a little tight on that uh, tombstone, brother. Adam, I will I will come out and admit I've now watched this show twice and I have no idea what I think of it. How about you? I am very much in that same boat. Um I, I look at the main event and it's like, no, this is not a show for me. But then I look at some of the stuff that's elsewhere on that card and I'm like, well, actually, looking at it that way, hmm. It's, um, it's one of those ones that's really sort of hard to quantify. I'm, I think I'm just going to have to do like a breakdown at the end and kind of work it out mathematically because I don't, I, offhand, I can't, I can't say whether it's a good show or a bad show. Yeah, we'll get there. I think I think there are a couple massive issues with the show, but I don't know if any of those issues 
bring it down to be say like a sub at least sub average show i think we'll i think i'll comfortably land at least average but but let's see what happens so we have jim ross and jerry the king lawler on the call for our opening match which is eddie guerrero the intercontinental champion defending against rob van dam we have shoves and fists to start and i know this next to rob this really shows how small eddie guerrero is a hot exchange he's rbd get the advantage and frustrate eddie and the crowd is super hot for rob Rob absorbs some shot from Eddie and regains the advantage with a surfboard attempt. Eddie fights it, but Rob locks it in. Eddie counters out when we go to the heat spot. Eddie works over Rob with boots, fists, and shit talks with the crowd. Rob snatches Eddie in that monkey flip kickout thing that he does, uh, followed by a hot shot and a rolling thunder for two. We see a step over heel kick that leads to a fail uh, five-star uh, attempt uh, from Rob. Eddie crotches Rob in the corner and grabs a power bomb. They then try frog splashes back and forth without success. And then out of nowhere, Eddie catches Rob in a backslide and uses the ropes for leverage and gets a three for the win. And my notes here, Adam, say that there's something here with these guys, but this match never really had enough time to get going. They needed probably five or ten minutes more to build to a finish, even if it was going to be the same finish. And I think that they'll eventually have that match. And this this was a fine opening match, but I would have really liked to see them have an extra five or six minutes to really build to something meaningful because it seemed like they they rushed through a bunch of spots to get to kind of a finish out of nowhere. And I felt that this was kind of a match that didn't really have uh, – this was a match without a core because there was nothing really to, to sustain it because I think it was two guys with ten minutes trying to get – 15 or 16 minutes of action uh, into it so perfectly fine maybe a little bit rushed uh what are your thoughts first thing i noticed was the the timing seemed a little off on a couple of the bits in like the first couple of minutes like uh rob ducked um an eddie guerrero swing way too early um and then where rob did the fake out on the second row to go to the split leg mood talk eddie sort of got down and just seemed to be waiting there for an age just some, which is weird because for the rest of this match they seem to flow really well um, I know there are some on this podcast who really love RVD and I can see definitely see the guy's appeal but unless he's in there with the right person he, he doesn't really have a lot going between all the impressive things he does um, so you need him in there with someone like an Eddie Guerrero um, the trouble with putting him in there with Eddie Guerrero is they were a couple of points of trading strikes and Eddie Guerrero's punches look like can take your, your head off and Rob Van Dam's forearms are the least stiffest thing in his arsenal. <laughs> and, and so watching them trade off, it just seems a bit laughable. Um, to be honest, I did quite like the finish. Um, it, did kind kind of out of nowhere, but I think my reading into that is the logic behind this feud is it's a big part of it is who's got the best frog, frog splash, and if you win a match with a frog splash, then you've kind of proven your points. So yeah, I think this I think the finish was solely just sort of build to a future match. Um, yeah. yeah. I think that's uh, how this feud has. To, I do think that's how this feud has to end for sure. It's a little bit like the Angle Benoit, where it's like, can you, 
can you submit me? You know, and if you lose, if you win the match by a roll up, like Angle did at Mania 17, for example, like we well, won the match, but you haven't really won the feud. You haven't really proven anything. You just won the match. But it's it's about their submissions, and here it's about the five star. So I think there is something to be said there, and maybe we'll get it. But you know, enough on that. Um, I think we have enough. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to some of these timing issues. I think I think that's the biggest thing for me that plagues the show as far as what matches were given a certain amounts of time. But uh, let's go to Creepy Vince. You know, in the back, we have Devon and praying with Vince, Stacy, uh, and the Deacon, whose name is uh, Batista, uh, Deacon Batista, I believe. And Vince takes the chance to check out Stacy. And uh, Devon guarantees that Bubba won't be there tonight uh, when uh, Trish takes on Stacy, which is our next encounter. Um, the lead up to this is uh, Trish and Stacy had an incident on SmackDown. And we know by now the Dudleys have broken up. Um, and these ladies are each affiliated with one of the Dudleys. Go figure. And so after Devon, you know, five minutes after Devon guarantees that Bubba won't be there, Bubba comes out with Trish. And Trish wins in three minutes. And after that, Bubba confronts Devon. Bubba counters a sneak attack from the Deacon and takes a shot from Devon. Uh, the Deacon goes to work on Bubba. And we get a Dudley flapjack for the table, and Bubba is counting stars. And as I've said, this was a nothing match, and I'm hoping that this Dudley angle is leading to something involving the Dudleys. Adam. Saturday, the Saturday after this event, the WWE debuted its two new shows, a confidential show and a show called Velocity, which is uh, SmackDown's answer to Sunday Night Heat. Now, it, because it, to try and make it seem like a big deal, they they main evented it with a title rematch from this pay-per-view. Um, this title match, they rematched on Saturday. Um, arguably the most rewatchable of, of three SmackDown title matches. But that... He's, but not, he's think, not joking, folks. No, I'm not. <laughs> Although I, I think a comment else... I, I actually did sit through uh, the, the first episode because I, I sort of wrote a bit on it for the forums. Um, and it, so these two had a rematch in a Brower and Panties match, and I think Al Snow inadvertently exposed the major problem with the women's title in this company, in that he sort of said how Stacy, how the Brower and Panties match um, was Stacy Keeble's best shot at the getting the women's title because it didn't involve a lot of wrestling. So your announcer has just exposed that your number one contender for your women's title is not a wrestler. Um, but yeah, like you said, she. Oh, honestly, man, I don't know if you exposed that. We're all watching it. Like, uh, I can see it, but I, I get yeah, what you're I, saying. But yeah, one of my notes is that Stacy is just the wrong shape. Um, we, you know, as for, much as, for us to be very for clear, for wrestling. For wrestling, yeah. I mean, as much as we we love, you know, her nice shape, we like she puts her center of gravity in the wrong place, and she kind of walks around like you know that scene in Bambi where they're on the ice. Very much reminds me of that. And <laughs> I'll never look at her the same again. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, she does have the deer in the headlights look uh, a, a lot of times on camera. Um, so, yeah, and she has shown neither the want nor the inclination to, to be a wrestler. She never, when she went to WCW, it was to be a dancer, which, which she was very good at. And we had no problem with her as a Nitro girl. It's when they started featuring her as an on a character outside of that that we really 
had any issue with her whatsoever. They had Batista come in and body slam Trish about halfway through the through the match. Um, I just want to say it, that's a questionable spot because a guy of that size, he has he probably knows more powerful moves, and that would have got the win for Stacy. Not that I'm advocating for a Stacy title reign as much as it just would have made more sense for him to hit a more powerful move because, yeah, it would. Let's. I, I agree with you. Let's let's be clear. Like a 300 pound man who's built like a fucking superhero, body slamming Trish Stratus should result in Trish Stratus losing the match and probably being stretchered uh, out of the arena or at least losing the match. But here it was a, it was a transitional spot. I, I think this match lost the plot. You have the Dudleys. Who are broken up and feuding. You have this enormous Deacon guy who I think is out of OVW, right? And, yeah. you know, he's just, he's huge. I mean, he's bigger than Bubba. And and the focus of the match is Trish versus Stacey in, in three minutes. I think this match just, like, like you said earlier with your comment, this match kind of lost the plot. And it's weird that we're using the women's title to transition to the Dudley versus Dudley blow-off. Um, is that going to be a blow off though I mean they don't there's been like no inter-promotional matches right now and it seems like mm, they could the King of the Ring is not a place to do like a big inter-promotional match unless you do it within the confines of the tournament and those are two those two aren't who I want to see in the quarterfinals of the King of the Ring so that means yeah. they'd be dragging out till SummerSlam maybe, maybe SummerSlam I think SummerSlam is fine. You can pull it. May, you know, because what you do is you have, you know, you have Devon and Deacon, you know, wreck shop on Bubba. And maybe Bubba wrestles Deacon. And Deacon's big and strong, but he's still young and inexperienced. And he's kind of a manager or an enforcer. So, you know, maybe you put Bubba over Deacon. And then you have Bubba versus Devon well, at SummerSlam. That, that's right? just it, though. Because whether on the separate brands, do you want one of your first interpromotional matches to be Bubba versus Deacon? Do you want him to? Do you want yeah. one of your first interpromotional matches to be the Dudley boys breakup. You're absolutely right. I just think the focus here is, is, is completely off. And yeah, the brand split makes us even more convoluted. I don't know what we're going to do, but I know we've spent three times as long on this match as, as they did. So I think we should keep it moving. And uh, I think you and I are in, in complete agreement. We've got to do this Dudley thing at some point. I think I just don't know how we're going to do it because as you point out, they're on different brands and theoretically not supposed to really cross paths outside of interactions here in the back we see rick and arn meet with vince and it's uncomfortable and then we go right to brock lesnar and paul Heyman versus the hardys on raw Heyman possibly saved brock from losing a two to one a, a, a handicap match against the hardys and so we have this match and uh, what i've put is brock squashes the hardys and then paul begs for the tag hilariously trips getting into the ring and pins Jeff in under five minutes. Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman squashed the Hardys in four and a half minutes. And I think this match was exactly what it needed to be if the point was to make Brock Lesnar look like an unstoppable killer. I also don't know who the Hardys have pissed off. Adam, your thoughts? Um, Brock is the least over of the four people in this match. Um other than a random Goldberg chant, you watch. Well, isn't never, isn't that the point? That's the that's the point, though, right? I mean, he that, that's, that, that's 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 why you do this, right? That, it, it's unfortunate, um, because Goldberg did it so well. But it's 
I mean, it's it's a tried and tested formula for building monsters like Brock. It's just Goldberg, because it almost happened by accident. That's just instantly who people think of. But yeah, outside of that single Goldberg, John, look at during the heat segment of the match, um, until I think there's one hope spot where Matt Hardy gets back. The crowd are really silent. It's only when the Hardys are on offense or when Heyman was involved that they were really behind it. Brock really, and yeah. I, I mean, the way you get Brock over is, is by doing is by doing matches like this. It's just unfortunate to watch on you know a, on one of the twelve big shows of the year. The guy they're trying to do this with, the crowd is just not reacting to right now, and it doesn't help. He's, he's still kind of green. Um, I've put that he either needs to show out more or show out less. There was a point where he hit a big move and he went to sort of pose, but didn't quite. The case of you either do it or you don't. That's it depends on how you want to work your gimmick. But yeah, if you kind of half-ass it, you're kind of losing that crowd connection, um, which right now he doesn't have. So anything to help him with that is is. I mean. Pairing him with Heyman is not a, is definitely a good shout because Heyman is Heyman gets that sort of stuff really well. Heyman can sit can can go over it with him, you know, in the back before the matches and go and break down the match afterwards with him. So Heyman is a good shout for for it. Just, I'm just hoping that you know he he does get this quickly because he he looks he's got a good look. He he moves around quite well. Yeah. He's just well, he's got nothing connecting him at the minute. There's no doubt that this guy, Lesnar, is somebody that they have earmarked as the next guy because recruited, I assume, by Gerald Briscoe and Jim Ross straight out of college, right? And then ship him straight to OVW to work with Cornette, Danny Davis, and I think Al Snow. And so, I mean, and then ship him off to Raw and put him with Heyman. I mean, they are giving this guy the golden array of people that you want to teach pro wrestlers i mean gerald briscoe jim ross jim Cornette, danny davis al snow and paul Heyman. i mean that is like harvard oxford level of professional wrestling education right there for a guy who looks like a fucking child in his face and then he's got the body of a greek god and you know so what I'm curious about, and you, you know this better than I do, I two thoughts came to my mind. First of all, when Vader beat Inoki, was the what was the crowd reaction to that? I realize that that is a far cry from what we're looking at here. But again, what we have is a young guy coming in and just kind of destroying a, an entity that didn't people didn't expect to be destroyed. Was the what was the reaction to that, if you recall? Uh, I'm not I'm a I not up on my old school New Japan, so I I. Uh, wouldn't be able to tell you offhand, I'm afraid. Sure, sure. Well, I'm just wondering because I, I don't expect the crowd was, you know, up in arms for it. Um, then the other one was it, it occurred to me that this is kind of what the Hardys do. Uh, they were the first team that Kane destroyed. I mean, the, the Hardys have been around getting big guys over for as long as, as this show has been, been, you know, covering wrestling. And I think the difference is here, this is the first time they've really been expected to do it when they're both individually and collect collectively kind of big stars. So it's kind of weird. But I think that emphasizes like 
Lesnar's not just beating these two, you know, skinny jabronis from North Carolina. He's beating the Hardys. I mean, these guys are fucking tag champions, you know, TLC legends. Jeff is one of the most popular wrestlers on the roster. Like, this is, I think this is a big deal. And I, I think you're right. I think there's some warts here. Lesnar really is still clearly learning. But putting him with Heyman and putting him in these spots and having him decimate one of the more established teams in the Fed in under five minutes, he may not be over. But if he doesn't get over, it's not going to be for any reason that the Fed uh, has uh, given him so far. Because between his recruitment, his training, and so far his on-screen presentation, it's been pretty impressive. We go to the back, and Booker is proud to have joined the NWO. Yes, you heard that right, and we'll touch on it in a little while. Uh, but for now, Booker sees an attractive woman who invites him back to her hotel room. And then we go right to our mid-card main event. Steve Austin, one and the same, versus The Big Show and Ric Flair in a handicap match. Oh, boy. Austin has been feuding with the NWO since WrestleMania, and since he's on Raw, he's also feuding with Ric Flair, the owner of Raw. And Flair thinks he can topple Austin, unlike McMahon. JR says for the millionth time that the Big Show is unstoppable once he realizes his full potential. Stone Cold Steve Midcard gets a decent pop, but something is gone. That's a problem. Austin attacks Rick and Big Show, and he falls show with massive double axe handles followed by a low blow. Steve puts Rick in a figure four before rolling out to avoid a big show elbow, and he grabs a chair. The ref won't allow the chair in a handicap match, which I believe are no disqualification by their nature. I don't know. The match settles into Flair versus Austin, 10 years too late, who milks the clock, and Steve grabs a beer. Um, show in, and he drops Steve, and the match maintains a glacial pace. Big Show and Rick work over Steve. Flair takes his own plane ride from hell out of the corner. We get a massive powerbomb from Show, and he drops Steve for just a two. And Flair locks in the figure four, but Austin powers out. Show and uh, Flair cannot keep Steve down. Steve then nails a stunner on Big Show. Here comes X-Pac, but he kicks the Big Show by accident and gets a stunner for his trouble. Stunner to Flair. And Austin, uh, settling uh, a decade of uh, spite. Picks up the 1-2-3 over Ric Flair in a match that was as disjointed as my match notes. I think this match was fine, but it stalled at times and was very slow. This is the match I would have trimmed probably three or four minutes off of and given some time to the opener. Uh, but I'm hoping that this is kind maybe maybe at the time I was hoping this might just be the end of mid-card Steve Austin. I'm going to allow him to move back up the card. But this match itself uh, may be fine. Not great, very slow. What were your thoughts? I know we're going to cover it a bit later, but is Flair supposed to be in the NWO or is he just aligned with them? Is that, actually, is that... he's not in the NWO? Uh, that I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll state that I think pretty clearly, but he's definitely utilizing the NWO to take out to attempt to take out Austin. Okay, so that, that would be why they came in separately then. Um, they didn't start tagging until a few minutes in. Um, not Then Austin hit a blatant low blow that was let go, and but chairs weren't allowed. 
So apparently disqualifications count except when they don't. So this whole thing's confusing. Um, Big Show at times just looked lost in there. When Austin started up with his fire, you know, he sort of, right at the start of the match, he sort of laid the punches on, on the Big Show and turned around and went for Flair. The Big Show just kind of wandered over to the corner. And then there was a point, and then when they started tagging in and out, Big Show hit a big move on Austin and just stood there. It's a case of, well, I don't know, drop an elbow, go for a pinfall, go for a tag, do something. And he just stood there and it's just, I, um, I don't know. I, I'm just, he could do with, I know he spent a year, better part of a year down on OBW, but he could still do with something. Even if it's just, I don't know, they've got some, like Arn Anderson is there at every taping. Maybe just have him running like drills with the guy before shows. Um, Jim Ross talks about Big Show's potential, like music fans talk about Chinese democracy from Guns N' Roses. It's like, we're never going to fucking see it, so stop talking about it. Like, just leave it alone. It's not coming. He's not good. That album's not coming out. Like, it's it. It's over. You know, it's dead, Jim. Fuck, I can see that album coming out. I just don't see it being worth the wait. I mean, it's only been, what, eight or nine years? Something like that. But yeah, yeah, I I can see see where you're coming from with the big. I think there is something there with him, but there is just so much wrong with what they've done with him. Uh, One big thing being he's when they have him there, he's there all the time, which is something they never did with Andre. Andre was always in and out because they were always booking him to other promotions. And so the big thing was that Andre was coming back. It was never that Andre was there to be with. Um, I, I think, like, basically you were saying during your, at the end of your recap, this is, this feels like such a pale imitation of what we saw two, three years ago with Austin. You know, he, he's doing the big baby face come back and overcoming all the peril uh, and getting the big victory and it's a case of we've seen this done before we've seen it done before so much better um, this just feels like a seventh generation photocopy um, in fact so I, I like yourself I, I watched this through twice first just to sort of get feel for it second time to start really sort of making notes on it and so that second time was this morning and I had to, after this match, I just had to take a break. My interest in this has just isn't there because they just, it's what I've seen be- before from Austin, only not done as well because Flair isn't Vince in that respect. The matches may be better, right. but but all the stuff leading up to the matches is what gets your interest in the matches. And yeah, I just don't have that interest in in this stuff with Flair, and that's what, and they seem to be dragging that out of it. So after that, we've got Cole and Taz in the Jesse Monsoon spot over the arena to preview the hair match between Edge and Kurt Angle. And we're reminded this match between two top guys started when Kurt tricked, or I'm sorry, when Edge tricked Kurt into revealing a "You Suck" shirt on Raw. And we go to Edge versus Kurt Angle in a hair match. They wrestle until Edge hits a baseball slide and they brawl outside. 
Kurt quickly gains the advantage and works over Edge with boots and slaps in the corner. Spinebuster gets Kurt a two. Edge fades with a chin lock until he powers out. Kurt keeps the advantage for with a suplex for a two. Edge finally gets some steam with a couple of clotheslines, a spin kick. Kurt is able to uh, get out of that uh, with uh, belly to belly, and he drops Edge. Uh, Kurt looking sharp as always. Always. Edge recovers, scales the top, and gets a 2.9 following a missile dropkick. Kurt again recovers with a suplex. Edge counters with a suplex of his own, counters another suplex with a roll-up for two. Edge scales the ropes, but Kurt gets the throw he won King of the Ring with, but only gets a two this time. Finishing sequence sees the ref go down. Edge gets the spear with no ref, and Kurt counters another spear uh, with a punt to the chest and another spear of his own, but Kurt kicks out at 2.99. I'm sorry, and then here is where Kurt gets a spear of his own, and he sets up the angle slam, and Edge kicks out with no time to spare. Edge counters the ankle lock with an enziguri, counters it again with a kick out, angle rebounds into the ropes, and then Edge snatches a cradle for the one, two, three. Angle works over Edge afterwards until Edge counters. Angle runs away before he can get his head shaved, and this will continue for a little while. So we'll pick this. We'll pick these two guys up here in about a half an hour, uh, Adam. But on the match itself, through Kurt uh, taking a powder, what'd you think? I personally thought. This was probably one of the better wrestling matches of the night. I was disappointed we weren't going to get the payoff, but we did eventually. Yeah, I have got a lot of praise for this match. Um, from a from a match structure technique, they actually played around with it a lot. Um, I don't know if anyone is familiar with the seven stages of a wrestling match, um, but to quickly go over them, you've got First, establish the heel and the baby face, which is, I, I mention every time about the heel should always come out first because it's easier to dislike someone and like them. Um, although not so much of an issue on a WWE pay-per-view because you've had four weeks of TV, you generally know who someone is. Then you have to shine your baby face, make them look, which is just make them look good. Um, then you have the cutoff, which is where the heel takes over. Then you have the heat, which is usually the bulk of the match. Um, it, injected in the heat, you've got the hope spots, and then you have the comeback and the finish, which is usually less than the last third of the match. However, the comeback and the finish for this match was, I believe, something like eight to 12 minutes, which is a ridiculously long time, but it made it work. It, these two made it workable. Um, Angle is so flawless with some of the techniques he does. Um, the cut that was a tight that was the length of that was a longer length of time than a lot of TV matches usually get, and the crowd were into it pretty much the whole time. You look from any time after the first Edgematic, and the crowd could have b- believed any of those false finishes to be the actual finish of the match. It's a sign that they had complete control over the crowd. Uh, I liked how. Edge miss how Edge um, didn't get hit with the first attempt at the throw off the top rope. Uh, I thought that was just great because um, you don't see that very often. It just sort of shows how well these two know each other, having been associated with the, on, um, both as friends and rivals for the last two years. Um, random thing, first mention of the word WWF all night. Uh, King mentioned it on commentary. Um, I'm surprised. So JR was JR was quick to uh, to point it out too. Yeah, 
Um, I'm surprised it took that long because um, there was a fair, certainly a fair few on that first Monday Night Raw, um, which JR was randomly wearing a WWF shirt for, which just seemed insane. Um, I do love, you know, they went through all the, the finish. They spent, they hit every one of their signature moves. Uh, the referee was out of position, or they they got the big kick out, and the finish was just a roll up. I I feel they they did that better than the backslide in the in the opener. Um, but yeah, I, this was yeah, just top to bottom, it was really well done. I like like I said, I um, people who want to learn how to become not just a wrestler but a main event wrestler look at the way they put together the the finish from this match. Um, when you when you're sort of studying match structure in wrestling school, this is so, this is one to have a look at because you break because the heat segment is like ridiculously short in this match, um, but it's still effective and they manage to keep the crowd just drawn in for that whole for that whole sort of I believe it was like eight to twelve minutes and I didn't time it but yeah yeah I, I think for a fifteen minute I think for a 15 minute match, which isn't, you know, particularly long for, you know, some of the, it's not long enough to be necessarily a great wrestling match per se. Maybe it is, but you know, this isn't, this isn't an all time match, but I think as far as the context of this show, I think this is the match that came closest to like a, 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 a very good match with mostly in ring wrestling. Um, I think this was the. It came closest to you know your 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 best traditional wrestling match, even with the stipulation uh, of everything on the card. Uh, and I think it was pretty clearly ahead of Eddie versus Raw, which is probably my second choice uh, in that respect. We have a big hill to climb here in a minute, uh, but let's uh, let's see what Booker T's up to. They're already at, back at the hotel, which must be across the street. Uh, they're in bed. There's a camera in the room somehow. The lights go off, and we hear uh, ridiculous kitchen, kissing sounds, making it clear that this is a segment produced by Bruce Pritchard. Um, the lights go off, and it's gold dust. Gold dust. This is his way of getting Booker out of the NWO. And Booker T, the former world champion, the conquering hero of WCW and the last WCW world champion of all time, runs bare-assed uh, out of bed into the bathroom because he doesn't want to be seen as gay uh, by being in the bed with gold dust. Uh, also neglected to note, he wasn't booked on this show. Well, The yeah. big sign of the NWO didn't have a match on the big show. Well, he was too busy doing this with Goldust in a comedy spot. Isn't it great? And this is why I don't think Goldberg stands much of a chance, although I recognize Goldberg is a much more marketable mainstream star uh, than Booker T, given their history. But that's not to say that Booker uh, wouldn't wouldn't excel if given the opportunity. That's not going to happen either, it would appear. It's necessary, but we have to do it for the good of the order. Triple H versus Chris Jericho. In a Hell in a Cell match, I've taken my anti my antacid uh, medication, and uh, I'm ready to do this. These two have been feuding for a while, and I'm hopeful this is the blow-off. And this is a very long match. Uh, we start to see Chris and Hunter uh, trade blows and shots in the side of the cage. 
Hunter then wrestles Chris in the middle of the ring, which is what you do when you're in a blood feud. Outside the ring, Triple H tries to pedigree him onto the stairs, but Jericho reverses and hits an awkward slingshot into the side of the cage. Uh, Chris gets a ladder. Um, and at this point, we notice the helpful footholds carved into the side of the cell. Uh, eight minutes into the match and Hunter is bleeding. Uh, Chris sends him into the ladder uh, set up in the corner. We go back in the ring and Chris nails uh, Hunter nails Chris in the back with a chair. Chris slides uh, the ring steps into the ring. So now we have chairs and ladders and ring steps in the ring and takes a drop toll hold on to the same stairs for his trouble. Hunter beals the steps into Chris's face and darts him into the side of the cage. Uh, back in the ring, Jericho hits the ropes and launches referee Timmy White into the side of the cage, who takes the bump of the night. JR emphasizes that Tim White has the key to the cell. Uh, Chris at this point pins Triple H, but there's no ref. Uh, Chris then attacks Tim White for not making the count, and now Tim White is bleeding. And a host of officials come to ringside, and they're looking for bolt cutters to get into the ring or to get into the cage. They do open the door to stretch out Timmy White. And at this point, Chris and Triple H fight out of the door and over to the Spanish announce table, and a DDT puts Chris Jericho through the announce table. Triple H then finds a barbed wire bat. So to recap, we have ladders and ring steps and chairs and the hell in the cell and a bat covered in barbed wire. Chris escapes by climbing the cage using those convenient footholds. Hunter follows him up with the bat and its convenient wrist strap. Chris gets the bat as Hunter reaches the top. They're fighting on top of the cage. Uh, Jericho locks in the walls of Jericho on top of the cage. Another another ref has climbed as Triple H if he submits on top of the cage. Triple H powers out and counters with a bat shot, encounters a bat shot with a low blow. Chris backdrops a pedigree attempt, but the cage holds this time, much to all of our chagrin. Triple H nails Chris uh, with the baseball bat for a two on top of the cell. And here, Triple H gets the pedigree and gets the three on the top of the cage for the win. I've written here, uh, the match at times uh, was uh, pleasantly violent and probably above average as far as the Hell in a Cell matches go, only because there have been so many lately in the last few years. Um, but this match was too long, too convoluted, and Tim White, the referee, took the bump of the night, which is not what you want to see in a Hell in a Cell match. I thought the finish on top of the cage was both creative and convoluted. Adam, I have a feeling where you're going to come down on this. But big picture, I really hope these two move on to greener pastures because I'm sick of watching them wrestle each other. Your thoughts? I, you know, I don't think I'm going to be as negative about this match as you think I am. Um, yeah, you mentioned about how they seem to be spending a lot of time, especially at the start, not really going at it like it's the blood feud it's been that I did sort of pick up on that but they but um, then again Triple H's style is also where it's quite rule heavy a lot of it does quite lean into um, what a lot of regular what a lot of more technical based guys would do in a blood feud so it's kind of hard to pick up on that um, I did like the nice bump Triple H took where he flew out the ring and managed to tie it perfectly. So he managed, so he smacked his head on the ring steps that Jericho put, had sort of kind of thrown it, thrown away. I thought, um, as 
you know, there is a lot of negative things you can take, say about Triple H, but when he does good bumps, he does good bumps really quite well. Um, they really, um, going back to my earlier thing about the seven points of the wrestling match, the shine on Triple H uh, was longer than I was expecting it to be. And this match is not, I mean, you said it sort of felt like it went on for a while. I don't, I think it was a similar time to the previous match. So I don't, so it wasn't a, an especially long match. Um, oh no, my friend, this match was 25 minutes. The second longest match on this card was 15 minutes. Okay. Um, if we skip to the uh, to the finish, it, I'm not a fan of the finish on top of the cell. Um, I'm not a fan of the bar wire baseball bat either. It just happened to be behind behind the ringside announcers table. I mean, you know, you, you'd think you'd have noticed something like that. Um, I think this match could have been just the same had they found something that was more realistically going to be there. Like, I don't know, the, the dozens of steel chairs that, you know, have featured in all the matches leading up to this. Um, the bump that Timmy White took was really, really gnarly looking. Um, he managed, because he hit, if you actually look where he hit, um, he either intentionally or unintentionally hit the, uh, the struts going across the cell, square on the forehead. So, it, so it did look really good. Um, and then you've got Jericho being, they're doing the brilliant prickish thing of you know then throwing him into the wall, which um, apparently, according to the WWE.com, uh, caused him to dislocate his shoulder. So, yeah, we're not going to be seeing him. Ooh, that's gnarly. Yeah. Uh, um, I did enjoy the match. Um, they, I just the with the build up where they did trying to put Jericho over as he was going to become all twisted and evil. I was just like, no, I don't see that happening. And while they tried in the match, it's a case of yeah, it's still not the same. And I know your criticisms of, of Jericho about him just being an overrated mid carder. Um, I thought he did well here, but the way he was used in the following SmackDowns, I feel, yes, I can see, definitely see where you're coming from. Um, which is as much on the creative side of things as it is on Jericho himself. So I, I just want to throw that one out there. Um, but yeah, no, I, I did enjoy the match. The finish did kind of take me out of it. But then again, the trouble with Hell in a Cells is you expect them to be, you expect them to get out at some point. That's kind of become the accepted thing because out of all the pay-per-view ones, when, when was the only one that didn't? Um, that was the Boss Man and Undertaker one, which universally is the most hated, unless you count <laughs> unless you count the TV ones they did in 1998, and no one counts those because no one wants to remember them. I think my my feelings about Chris Jericho have been, uh, you know, broadcast uh, plenty. Um, Triple H, I'm still kind of on the fence on. Not sure how I feel about him these days. Uh, haven't quite gotten 2000, early 2001 out of my head yet. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, but anything to mean less Chris Jericho at the top of the card, for me, the better. Uh, let's see. In the back, Edge chases Kurt. 
And at the world, uh, Maven and Tori are on a date sharing a massive daiquiri. King is disgusted. Frankly, I'm impressed. Good job, Maven. And then we go to Rico and Rikishi versus Billy and Chuck. Uh, well, it'll be Rikishi and a mystery partner, I'm sorry, uh, versus Billy and Chuck uh, for the tag team titles. And uh, we learn that Rikishi has a secret partner that's been handpicked by Mr. McMahon. And it's Rico, a style advisor to Billy and Chuck. Rico and Rikishi are, we'll say, to, we'll say unwilling partners. The match putters on for two or three minutes until the finish. Rico accidentally nails Chuck with a roundhouse kick, which allows Rikishi to get the pin. And hilariously, Rikishi and Rico are now the tag team champions. And Rico makes sure to pretend he's not happy about the outcome, but he does, covertly enough, leave with the tag team strap. And I've written here, as I've recovered it, this was a match needed for the finish. Perfectly fine mid-card fare. Um, it did have a little bit of an overlap in terms of uh, some of the story, uh, the way it developed to the Austin Flair uh, Xbox stuff from earlier. But get it on the card, get it over with. Rico and Rikishi, tag team champions. Adam, just spend a few seconds on this one because this was the definition of shove it in there to let the crowd breathe between the two co-main events. One really weird thing that irritated me about this match is Billy's boots were white. If they'd been gold, it would have matched his hair. If they'd been red, they would have matched the trunk, but they were all white. That bugged me. No no follow-up on that. It just It's something I noticed <laughs> in three minutes. It really bugged me. Um, also, how devastating is Rico's sidekick? Um, you know, I think Rikishi hit his sidekick earlier in the match and couldn't get a pimple. Um, but yeah, this was fine. Um, they carry this on for the next, what, two or three weeks. Um, I'm, I mean, they, this could have had, this could have main evented that debut episode of, uh, of Velocity, and I don't think it would have been any worse than the women's match. But mm. no, it's it, it was what it was. Um, I've no complaints for what it was. It was where it was where it needed to be because yeah you're going between um two big main events yeah um, it was it, it was too short to be anything dreadful it was yeah. actually kind of entertaining uh, a little comedy a little comedy action in between these two uh, kind of hyper serious uh, matches but then of course we get more comedy because in the back uh kurt attacks edge and kurt says he's going to cut edge's hair um but that doesn't happen because Edge, of course, eventually gets the advantage and they, they brawl out uh, to uh, the barber station. And Edge uh, domes Kurt uh, with the Clippers. And this is probably the best I've ever seen in an effective uh, haircutting. Uh, we certainly didn't have any uh, Jeff Jarrett uh, hair clipper issues here. Um, and the crowd chants, of course, you're bald uh, at Edge's prompting. And you can fit that into Kurt's uh, theme. Adam, anything on this? Uh, this wrap up to the Kurt Edge uh, segment, and now we have balding Kurt Angle, which is probably better than uh, thinning Kurt Angle. Take a note, Shawn Michaels, for whenever you decide to uh, put the Vicodin aside and, and come back to the fold. Um, sometimes it's just you just got to cut it off uh, when it starts to leave on its own. What do you think? Um, yeah, no, this was fine. You know, um, I Angle is he is. One of his one of the weird strengths of Angle is is 
um he's got like great comedy chops there it just he just has like this sort of dopiness about him that works in situations like this i think yeah just really good at playing the full um yeah i don't have anything sort of you know particularly bad to say about this i'm part of the reason that they didn't have any of the issues with like Jarrett or other issues they've had with heavy hair matches is where they've left it time you know they're not sort of sweating they weren't sweating profusely at this point so well yeah. you know they had the sweat to short out the clippers which is generally what happens a lot of the times in heavy hair matches so when it all goes wrong that's why so yeah i think something like this abs- like absolutely does not hurt kurt angle whatsoever and it helps edge so i think like you know kurt is kind of that guy who can do ridiculous stuff and have ridiculous thing happens ridiculous things happen to them but he's such a legitimate wrestler and such a legitimate star at this point that you know he could have the next night on raw challenged uh for the world title and had this not like come back to bite him and i think it helps edge with his kind of like sinister comedy upper mid card face gimmick you know what i'm saying yeah i mean there's something like this sort of helps edge a lot more than it would ever damage Kurt Angle and um, I think because Edge is Edge is starting to come along as a single now he's a bit shaky when they split up Christian but um, I mean I did obviously I raved about the match earlier um, I said about the seven points of wrestling there is an argument that there, that there is an eighth point which is you know kind of like the continuation um, so in regards to that match this would be the eighth point because this sets up edge an angle for where they go next um on the smackdown before this uh angle had a showdown with hogan where hogan was sort of pointing out all like the bald people who've been great wwf representatives like um billy graham and even himself sort of losing his hair and and austin as well of course <laughs> um and so yeah this sort of kind of and it Going by, you know, what happens further down the line this month, it looks like they're sort of following up and going for Edge Angle, possibly at King of the Ring. If not, building it maybe maybe a little longer. Yeah, I think this is a perfectly good, perfectly good blow off to that angle, and I don't think it hurts uh, anybody. And yeah, if they have a if they have a blow off at King of the Ring, or if they push it to, to SummerSlam or somewhere in between, I think. That's perfectly good, and I think this this or at least if they have a few more matches, this gives Angle credence to to maybe win one, you know, come out and and, and get his revenge. We'll see. And now we have it: the uh, rubber match, eleven years in the making. Uh, Hulk Hogan, and yes, I'm going to say this: the WWE champion, Hulk Hogan, the first WWE champion, versus the Undertaker. A few days ago at Survivor Series, Ric Flair helped The Undertaker pin Hogan for the title. And so tonight in San Antonio, we see if Hogan can get his belt and his... Oh, shit. Sorry. That was the wrong That was the wrong recap. Uh, actually, here, Evil Undertaker wants to end the Hogan comeback story. There we go. We're up to speed. So uh, we start, and Taker clobbers Hulk with the weight belt. Hogan recovers and nails Taker with the same. We battle outside, and Taker is sent into the ring steps. In the ring, Hogan counters old school. Hogan scales the ropes himself and hits a fucking superplex. Can you believe that? Hogan nailing Undertaker with a suplex for a two. I popped for that one, not going to lie. 
Hogan takes like 70% of the offense in this match, uh, but The Undertaker counters a leg drop with a half crab. Hulk escapes and allows The Undertaker to hang himself on the ropes by missing a big boot. The Undertaker snatches Hulk and hits a choke push for a two. Hulk is up and the crowd is into it. Uh, punches, big boot, leg drop for the two. Because it's 2002. Hogan lowers his head and allows Taker to hit a DDT for a two. And now here's Vince. He's down to ringside as The Undertaker grabs a chair. Hogan counters and nails Taker with a chair and a leg drop. But Vince has the ref. Hogan attacks Vince, but this allows The Undertaker to drop Hulk with a chair and a second choke push, which almost rose to the level of a choke slam. And the three. The Undertaker. <laughs> Hogan did not take that uh, that tombstone, my friend. We were talking about that earlier. Hulk Hogan uh, loses to The Undertaker. The Undertaker is the WWE champion in a scant 11 minutes and 17 seconds. I will say... That this match was a thousand percent better than it had any right to be. It was short. Hogan got most of the offense. The Undertaker won, and it was good to get the belt off of Hogan so he can pick it to, uh, pivot to feuding with Vince, and the belt can matter again. But despite probably what's going to be five or ten minutes of us, you know, poking some fun at this match and at these people, I actually thought this match way over delivered. Do you agree? Um, I mean, it wasn't as bad as I was going to, as I was expecting it to be. I'll go that far. Um, well, that that <laughs> that that's why I think it overdelivered because it wasn't a zero. So, on one of the previous, so when the brand split was announced, some of the guys on that episode said they were probably going to, you know, leave out watching Raw and focus more on SmackDown when it wasn't their month to be on the show. And I kind of envy those guys because having watched both this month, um, I've seen what the roundup for this feud is. And I've also seen the actual build up live on Raw. And what was on Raw, a lot of it was atrocious. And the production people at, at Connecticut there, they edited it together to actually make it look fairly good. Um, but although. Where Hogan got we did, we, we did see that famous angle, you know that 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 now famous angle on Raw, only famous because they've replayed it how many times on as many shows as they can squeeze it into between it happening and you know in the last three or four weeks where Hogan Undertaker drags Hogan on his bike and then Hogan gently crashes into those uh, boxes filled with uh, absolutely nothing and sells himself being dead. But that's going to be one of those videos that we see in perpetuity for time and memoriam, I have a feeling. Let's go for a ride, Hogan. Let's go for a ride. How the hell is it? Oh, the Undertaker. Oh, my God. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Get back there. Wait a minute. The Undertaker. That's the Undisputed Champion. Hold tight at the feet. My God. Wait a minute. He's dragging another human being. Undertaker. That's dragging Hogan. Out of all the stuff that, out of all the SmackDown recaps, that's one of the ones that even their production team couldn't save. Because I remember when I remember watching that, uh, I say live, I remember watching that when it happened on Raw and thinking that actually does look really fun. 
and the fact that Hogan is smiling for most of the ride really doesn't shatter that illusion. Um, fuck it, I'd give that a go. Or what? What's the worst that could happen? He's wearing a thick leather jacket. It's not like he. It's not like he's been made to do it shirtless, and it's and a lot of it was over carpet. So yeah. Um, but yeah, like the a lot of like the build up to this was really poorly done. Like when Hogan stole the motorbike and Undertaker just disappeared. Yeah, JR saying, well, where's he gone? Why is he not sort of coming to get get his bike? And it's you never really got the answer to that. And yeah, cause, and it's just one of those things of, well, yeah, that doesn't make any sense why he would let that happen. Um, and then you had just the embarrassing thing of Hogan trying to chase Undertaker up the ramp in the motorbike and it... Uh, yeah, so the the build up to this was horrible. Um it's just the if it if what you saw in the video before the match looked any decent, that's just the guys at Connecticut, um the studio there being really good at their jobs. Um I was you know what, I was really upset with this match before the bell even began before the bell even rang. Um, you had like the seg- you had the bit where they were whipping each other with the weight belt, and then Hogan pops up and hit three punches. I was like, ah, oh, you know, what? I will take that. And then it was a case of he didn't even go for the leg drop. I was just like, wait, what? And then the bell rang. I was like, oh, because I I would I would rate this match a lot higher had it only gone like those thirty seconds or whatever. <laughs> uh, it was amazing. Yeah, that was. I mean. You know, I, I did pop a bit for the Superplex. I would not have seen that coming from these two. Um, but yeah, a lot of the... Especially leading up to that Superplex, Hogan was moving really slowly, I thought. I know he busted up his ribs in the match with, with Rock, which, yes, the spectacle was amazing, but no, the match wasn't that great. Um, I can see why everyone loves it, but watch it, don't just if you love it, don't watch it for the sound off. Just put it that way. Um, yeah, the, the choke slams. I think they're getting better, but only because Hogan is getting slightly higher. Um, by slightly higher, I mean he can now step over a ferry as opposed to stepping over an ant when he gets lifted off the ground. Um, oh. when you say slightly higher in Hogan, I start looking for beefcake. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I I think the Hogan. I think it's a sign of just how bad an experiment the Hogan title run was when Taker kicks out of that leg drop. That that was a very muted shock reaction from the crowd. There was not that much interest. Uh, just uh, very quickly, your overall thoughts on this show and a rating out of 10, please. So eight matches, start out of five, go up or down. So. Uh, so Guerrero versus RVD. Yeah, let's, let's take one and a half one for that. Six and a half. Uh, the Trish. I'll, I'll knock the half off for the women's match. Um, that's most. That's not just because of who was in the match, but because of what happened afterwards. I'm really not a fan. Uh, Les, Lesnar and the Hardy Boys. Uh, add, adds nothing, takes nothing away. Uh, Austin versus. Show and flair. I'm gonna not. I'm gonna have to not. Yeah, two at least two off for that, just because of um, it made me not want to watch the rest of the show. So that's four. 
Edge versus Kurt Angle. I don't know, we'll go two and a half for that one, so that's five. That's uh, six and a half. Triple H and Jericho. You know, I'll go up to seven for that. Rico and, Rico and Rikishi versus Billy and Shut. And the back down to six and a half. Uh, I'm just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm at five and a half. The thing is, I look at some of these matches and I think that'd be generous, but then I think of some of the other matches and I'm like, that's quite harsh. But yeah, that's. that's Five and a half is where I'm is where I'm going to stay because I I think that's about as fair as I'm going to get with this show. I think I'm with you. I think I'm right at square to five. I think this is not a show that I'd recommend to casual wrestling fans. Um, if you're you know weekly viewers like like you and I and and most of the listeners probably and the rest of the guys on the show, I would say probably a show you need to watch just for continuity's sake and to keep up on everything because a lot does happen and there is some storyline advancement in here, but. You know, other than watching this show once for entertainment and once to prepare it for this show, I don't know that I'll be going back to watch Judgment Day 2002 anytime soon. For me, squarely a 5 out of 10 show, Judgment Day 2002 in the books. Wrestling Entertainment. Get the F out. I think there's three major uh, things going on that we need to talk about. Uh, one is this brewing Hogan versus McMahon feud. Uh, the second, I think, uh, is just to touch base on what's going on with the NWO. And finally, uh, what I've deemed aimless Austin. Uh, just a guy who seems to be uh, without uh, any sort of a fungible direction at this point. Read my lips. There's no chance in hell of you retiring. You're not going to retire tonight. You're not going to retire any night. And I'll tell you why. Because 10 years ago, you walked out on me. Not this time, because this time I have a signed contract, and if you retire tonight, I'll sue you and your family for everything you've got. See, Hogan, I look at it this way. I think the only way you're ever going to leave my company is when your body is decomposing in a pine box. I'd like to remind you, I created Hulk Hogan. I own Hulkamania. Oh yes I do. And I intend Hogan I intend to milk Hulkamania for every cent I can until the day you die. So we'll start with Hogan versus McMahon. And aside from the pay-per-view, we saw uh, two uh, massive uh, things happen this month. First of all, on the May 16th SmackDown, Hogan came out and basically uh, bid farewell 
uh, before his uh, match with The Undertaker. It was kind of weird. And McMahon uh, came out to dress down Hogan and took the big leg on SmackDown uh, on the 16th. And then after the pay-per-view, we zip ahead. And um, on SmackDown on the 23rd, Hogan does give uh, what appears to be a retirement speech. Uh, but again, he's interrupted by Vince. Vince says there's no chance in hell Hogan is allowed to retire. And Vince says he'll sue Hogan if Hogan retires. Uh, Vince says he'll milk Hulkamania until the day he dies. And Hogan now says he's not retiring until he kicks Vince's ass. And he does attack Vince, but the Undertaker saves. Uh, Adam, we appear to be building to an, a Hogan-Vince feud. Uh, I think this could be entertaining if done right. Uh, two guys with massive egos, but I think they've been probably wanting to beat the hell out of each other for the better part of a decade now. What do you think? Do you have any optimism that a Hogan-Vince kind of side feud uh, is uh, is worth your time and money? How weird is um, I think Vince mentioned it in the retirement speech that 10 years ago he was in exactly the same position, and it was 10 years ago um, that Hogan yeah. announced his retirement just before WrestleMania 8 with him in, in an interview with Vince. It's just you know one of those odd things that just is weird how... Um, it sort of reflects on itself. Um, now, Vince, as a in-ring wrestler, is horrible. Um, there's no two ways about that. However, his matches tend to be always veer on the entertaining side, um, just because of the stuff he's prepared to do to make up for the fact he's a terrible wrestler. Um, you know, like. The, cage match with austin and the match with shane last year that they both sort of stick out as two that really strong so if hogan's prepared to do some crazy stuff at least crazy for him it could it could be quite good it could be quite sort of worthwhile i think this could be a really good feud on the stick and i don't think you necessarily need to have some huge match i think if it's just a a brawl or even a segment that that culminates say at a pay-per-view you know SummerSlam, vince and hogan head to head in the ring and then it culminates in in something like that maybe you do a match but i think you let these two who are still two of the best stickmen in the business uh you know have a talking feud and then a very short but meaningful blow off at some point that's how i would do it but i'm not booking this stuff yeah i mean i i want to see it like a big show like uh, SummerSlam or romania um, just because it is that sort of standard of show. I mean, I know the cage match with Austin happened at a February pay-per-view. That's because Austin was in a state to to be to main event mania for the title. Hogan cannot say that right now, as proven by the match we have just covered. He's in no state to main event a a major show, especially the biggest show. Um, Main is nine months from now. Is are they going to drag this out that long? Was you know, is it going to be? Is it going to risk? Because to drag it out for that period of time, you you're risking you know reliving Hogan and not sorry, uh, Austin and Vince, which we're seeing on on the other show with Austin and Flair, just nowhere near as well. I mean. At least with Hogan, you've got the history. You've got, um, you know, just all those interviews, uh, 
from like the 80s where Hogan's sort of cutting the interview with with Vince uh, and it's way and a lot of them are like the sit down interviews as opposed to the well you know what I mean Gene interviews that we always yeah. think of Hogan so do you throw into that like some of the backstage stuff like um I don't remember how much we actually covered the the steroid trial when it happened in 94 but Hogan was part of that for the other side <laughs> doing like a now, 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 now you've got my, my brain working here. So I'm thinking maybe we do, let me think, uh, uh, you know, Hogan and Hogan and Zahorian versus Vince and McDivitt or something like that. Special guest referee, Anita Scales, something <laughs> like that, maybe. Look it up, folks. Um, so there is, there is a lot of history they can work on, but it's a case of how, if, are they just going to sort of throw it out on like the vengeance pay-per-view or, or like in the October pay-per-view or are they going to hold off to mania or are they going to do it at SummerSlam? Cause like I said, it, it should be a big event because it is that scale of match. We are on the same team. Where the hell were you last night at judgment day when NWO could have used you against Austin? Huh? Look, man, I'm not the one that kicked my own partner in the head. No, no, no. You know what you were doing? You were in some hotel room last night trying to get laid by some Holly Berry-looking chick. Uh-oh. You know what? At least I can get laid. You know what? You two suckers are just jealous because I'm Booker T, the five-time WCW champion. Now, can you think that, sucker? Wow. All I know is, we didn't ask you to be in this group. And if you want out, I got no problem taking you out. Uh Uh-oh. Personally. (laughs) All right. You want some of me? You want some of me, you big seven-foot sucker? Get some, won't some, let's do Here we go! And this NWO is becoming a part of the scene. Wait a Uh-oh! Now that's Kevin Nash. Uh-oh! One of the founding members of the NWO. Speaking of hash-outs and, 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 and never-ending, uh, rehashes and never-ending uh, stories. We have the NWO, who returned, of course, in February with Hall, Nash, and Hogan, led by Vince to take on us uh, and, and topple Steve Austin. Since then, uh, Hall has been fired uh, due to the plane ride that the gentleman discussed uh, in earlier uh, May. Uh, Nash has been out. Hogan has turned uh, face. So now, in early uh, May, the NWO was Big Show and X-Pac. Uh, they recruited Booker. And the Nash did return. Um, but at this point, uh, at the end of May, now the NWO consists of Big Show, X-Pac, Kevin Nash, uh, and Booker T is on the fence. And uh, Adam, we don't have to spend much time here at all, uh, but I've just written, this is sad and pathetic. Where is it going? Yeah. Ah, oh, man, it's it's. I want to say it's difficult, you know. I want to say, oh yeah, it's it's bad to see all this happening with them. But you, 
when they came in for the first couple of weeks, it seemed, yeah, it it seemed something. It was, it seemed strong. It seemed like they could possibly ca- recapture the magic. And then Austin ran off all three of them at once. And yeah, after how do they come back from that? Um, especially now two of them aren't there. Uh, I mean the, the they tried, you know, to sort of they tried sort of uh, put a bandaid over it by bringing back X Pac and Big Show, who were of course early members in in the WCW era. So at least that made sense. But yeah, it's they since yeah the Austin feud. It just hasn't really felt like a presence. Um, one of the last shows we did, there was like a big sort of meeting with all four of them where it looked like Nash was going to try and, you know, make them the dominating force they used to be. But, it, but I'm worried that's just too little, too late. Um, I mean, they brought Booker T in now and he he's on the verge of turning face. Um, I don't know how many people realize that, but a lot of the crowd are giving him big, Sort of big time face pops. Um, that's, yeah. not that's not something you want in the NWO. Um, that well, it's it's classic. It's classic McMahon arrogance, right? We'll bring yeah. in the NWO. It's the it's the letters, pal, and it's the WWE machine behind it. It doesn't matter who you put in. You could put in, you know, Lonnie Poffo and the Brooklyn Brawler and the Killer Bees and put them in those T-shirts, and we'll get them over, right, pal? And it's like no. The NWO was Hall, Nash, and Hogan, and everything after that was was diminished. And they brought in Hall, Nash, and Hogan, and it was dead within a week. At that point, just stop. Nash is over. As Nash is a credible upper card guy that you have that you can bring in and do stuff with. Hall's gone, and Hogan's back to being red and yellow. It's just it, to me, this is just classic WWEF stubbornness and arrogance. And their their inability to let something go when they realize it's not working. And it's, but on the other hand, it is, to me, uh, diminishing the NWO brand uh, as you know as every day goes by. And maybe that's their goal. And to me, like the the stink of the NWO and and its comeback has really, it's it's the threat of this whole you know post show segment that we're going through because we've seen Hogan cast himself off of the NWO and probably ascend clearly above where they are. He's feuding with McMahon. He's feuding with The Undertaker. He had a you know a, a legacy run with the world title. And on the other hand, Austin, the guy whose job it was to feud with the NWO and I, I guess ostensibly break them up or or you know move them into the WWF WWE atmosphere is is adrift. I mean this is a guy that six months ago we were proclaiming had the best year of anybody in the history of our timeline, 1993 through 2001, 2001 Steve Austin is one of the most incredible years I've ever seen from a primary guy in a wrestling show carrying two shows a week for a year. It was amazing. Even after he turned heel, which was very controversial, his promos, his work was still stellar. It tonally was a little bit off at times, but Austin Austin carried the Fed on his back for a year. And now... He's feuding with Ric Flair and the Big Show. They have a ho-hum match at Judgment Day. And he seems to be kind of making his way around with week-long feuds or week-long segments with other guys. 
I guess you really don't like what I'm singing, do you? Sing another song just so I can bother you. Alright? Because you've been bothering me all night, man. Thank you. We see him on May 20 in the bar, drinking his sorrows away with Deborah, and Eddie Guerrero is there. And at the bar, Eddie and Austin uh, get into a little bit of a tiff, and Eddie Guerrero ends up breaking a beer bottle over Austin's head. But that doesn't specifically go anywhere. The following week on Raw, we see the long-awaited return of Chris Benoit. Eddie cuts him off, and Eddie says that Chris is jealous of Eddie, and Flair won't let them wrestle. And he sends Benoit back to SmackDown, and Benoit just agrees to leave. Uh, later in that night, just as an aside, Eddie and RVD do have a hard-hitting ladder match. Uh, called that. Didn't mean to, but did. Um, it was a pretty good ladder match, and I recommend it for those who like that sort of thing. But Steve does uh, beat the piss out of Eddie Guerrero. But then what happens? Benoit comes back and turns on Austin. So now we have Steve Austin uh, feuding with the Big Show and Ric Flair and Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit. This is not the guy who main evented the highest grossing show in the history of professional wrestling. It's just not. That was only a year and a couple months ago. Um, Adam, what are they doing with Steve Austin? Um, yeah, they've really cooled him off lately. Um, so for those who don't keep an eye on, on the forums that I moderate, um, I mentioned that Austin walked out the day after WrestleMania. That's why he wasn't around for the drafts, but that's why he was drafted separately. Um, however, that's a, we've covered it on here in the past that he's not happy with creative um it was covered in quite in depth his feelings on working with scott hall and from what i understand he has been quite hot and cold about a lot of the nwo stuff i mentioned um earlier in the in the show about what he said at insurrection but yeah they they've really i don't know Maybe they want to transition to someone new because Austin's so associated with the Attitude Era. They're trying to transition to something else, and it's kind of hard with him there. But it's still your biggest drawing star, arguably of all time. Um, yeah, with you, you said about the Benoit stuff, that quite easily 
make sense because one of the last times we saw Benoit, um, I mean, it was the King of the Ring pay-per-view, but the last time we saw him before that, was probably I think it was that same arena, if I'm not mistaken, in that infamous match with Austin where he delivered those multiple German suplexes. So it didn't, it wasn't completely outside of the realms of believability that he would actually turn on Austin there. Um, there is, you know, it did make a lot of sense. Um, I mean, it does look like they're going towards something with Eddie and, and Austin, which I have to say is more than they've got with The Undertaker right now. I mentioned about The Undertaker's match with RVD. Follow-up to that was him beating the snot out of Tommy Dreamer the next week, which... Um, I have no issue with it you know, for no other reason than um, Tommy Dreamer in the WWF just does nothing for me. But yeah, with Austin though, I oh, it's weird. He has some use. He's people remember him as the hot star. I was going to say like two, three years ago, but he was at his peak creatively at least not necessarily booking-wise, that wasn't his fault. Last year, Austin in 2001, it was Steve Austin at his best. Whether you like the heel turn uh, or you're of the right state of mind, um, you can't deny that the work he was putting in, both in the ring and on the microphone, was as good, if not better, than his Attitude Era peak. And the fact that they have seemingly just kind of walked away walked away from that and just seemingly just kind of left him out on the curb is is quite sad um i i hope that you know you find some new fire with this stuff with guerrero and benoit because i think you know they're the sort of talents that he that could really benefit from working with austin um you know he it's not like they've been jobbing him out so he's still got you know value the only big loss he's had this year i think was to jericho which took three members of the nwo for that to happen um but yeah i i don't know he does he's very kind of lost out in the field at the minute and i i just hope that something can happen with him and i think at this point uh we will transition uh, out of timeline mode i as one of the curators of the show have the ability uh to make that call um, for two reasons. Uh, one, uh, I want to talk with Adam about the passing of the uh, British Bulldog, which will have occurred in our timeline uh, on May 18th or 19th, uh, 2002. But also, as these things happen in the modern world, as we've talked about this show, as we've been talking about it, we've learned of the passing of Tim White, the referee. Uh, we're recording this show on uh, June 19th of uh, 2022, not to break kayfabe. And Tim White, the star of the Hell in a Cell match that we would have just covered about an hour or so ago, we've learned has passed away. Um, and I thought it was important, Adam, uh, before we go into talking about the British Bulldog, that we just mentioned uh, mentioned Tim White here because it seems like that's what the cards of fate uh, wanted us to do. Tim White, uh, we're covering his last match ever as a referee here. Unfortunately, that shoulder injury would uh, result in the end of his uh, refereeing career. I believe he was with the Fed for another five or ten years after that in various roles and would pop up at fan conventions and here and there uh, from time to time since then. But uh, Adam, as the uh, wrestling cosmos goes, uh, as we're discussing him, news of Timmy White's uh, untimely uh, passing 
uh, hits the news. So just a couple uh, sentences on uh, on Tim White before we talk about uh, David Boy Smith. Yeah, that was weird because um, it was literally as we were reading the news headlines because you sent it to me on a Twitter thing that the hashtag sort of came up as I was sort of scanning through through the format you sent me today. Um, actually, technically, the Hell in a Cell wasn't his last match because he did. Yeah, um, I remember him refereeing at WrestleMania 20, but sadly he re-injured the shoulder, and it, yeah, his shoulder was never oh. right. So this was that this was the injury that would precipitate the end of his career, but it wasn't necessarily the end. I got it. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. So he, I, I actually just brought it up his Wikipedia thing, and it's it's quite sad that the biggest entry on his Wikipedia is those ridiculous fucking WWE.com segments he did with Josh Matthews um, in 2005, 2006, where he would try and fail to kill himself. I, um, I, which was We'll get there. At this point on the timeline, he was the... He was uh, Earl Hebner's opposite on SmackDown, so he, he was obviously you know, quite highly thought of um, up, to this, up to this point. And in fact, you know, he still appeared on every time they did something new with Andre the Giant. He was the guy they yeah. brought in because they were so closely associated for years. And I, you know, maybe... I think you can watch. I think you can watch those segments where 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 he's talking with Andre, talking about Andre, and you can yeah. tell just what genuinely caring man this was. You know, he took he took it upon himself to make sure that this guy who was crippled by frame uh, by fame and crippled by his own frame and, you know, living in a world that wasn't built or designed to house a guy like Andre the Giant. And and Timmy White is there at his side, making sure he's getting what he needs and making sure he's comfortable and making sure that he's not being harassed. And you can just tell that this, that this guy had a true love for Andre the Giant, had a true love for the wrestling business, and, and really was one of the genuine dudes in wrestling. Yeah, he's one of those guys who, you know, I've never really heard any, anyone say anything bad about. Um, yeah, it's just, obviously, it's a shame he didn't get to go out on his own terms. You know, it's, it's another one, which is, it's two referees in one weekend. Cause well, they, we, yeah, we should mention, yeah, I was going to say, we should mention uh, the passing of Dave Hebner as well, uh, just a couple of days before we, we came to air. So I think what you're getting at, uh, this is, you know, we started the show morose in timeline and we're kind of ending it morose out of timeline, but these things happen, man.
At just 39 years old, Davy Boy Smith died late May 18th or early May 19th, 2002, after suffering a heart attack in British Columbia. Uh, he was at the time was the latest in a string of family tragedies. Of course, his cohort, Brian Pillman, died under similar circumstances in October 1997. Owen Hart then died in May 1999, which we do not need to rehash. And then Bulldog's sister, Tracy, uh, passed just a couple of years or a couple of months after Owen, I think, um, to cancer. And and so if you're listening to the show, I don't have to tell you the importance of the Bulldog. Um, Hart also passed, I believe, the previous year as well. That's right. That's right. And, they, they, and, they went for a lot of tragedies in a short time that family yeah it's 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 a wonder brett is as normal as he is um if you're listening to the show i don't have to tell you the importance of the bulldog to our corner of the universe um from the amazing bulldogs heart foundation series in the 80s to his met with brett at SummerSlam 92 his matches with vader and wcw his run with owen and was really the only meaningful tag team in the fed in 96 and 97 and his match with Owen in the European title tournament in early 97, his run in the 1997 Heart Foundation, and, and, and after that, Bulldog was an omnipresent star uh, from the late 80s uh, through uh, basically the year 1999-2000. And, you know, he is, that, that Heart Foundation run now in 97 is all the more tragic because it's Brett who's, who's left standing uh, now you know, 25 years after after that. But here we are on the 20th anniversary of the passing of the British Bulldog. And I felt that uh, this is one of those that definitely warranted a special segment. For me personally, um, you know, Bulldog meant the most to me when he's part of the Heart Foundation. That's my favorite time in wrestling of all time. That's that's my, my jam. 1997, Brett, Owen, Bulldog, give it to me all day and every day. But I think what's easy to forget about the British Bulldog is he was a great wrestler in his own way. He always had good matches against better wrestlers. And I think that's unique in its own right. He had great matches against Brett, Vader, uh, against, uh, well, I don't know if he was better, if Vader was a better wrestler than Bulldog, but you know what I'm saying? Those Shawn Michaels matches at the King of the Ring and, and at the uh, Beware of Dog show in 96. You know, the random matches he had in 95 when he turned heel, um, and was kind of affiliated uh, when he first joined Camp Cornette. I just think that this is a guy who, you know, we all love for various reasons, but really in terms of what you want in a professional wrestler, I don't know that you could create one that's more ideal than the British Bulldog. And unfortunately what you have is a guy who also had his own problems and his own demons and was a victim of the industry and a victim of the mentalities of the road. And we have a guy who's died dead of a heart attack at 39, which is not old at all. Um, but I think these segments are more designed to have us remember the positives and have us remember why why these individuals touched our lives as they do. Because at the end of the day, it's just wrestling. But that just wrestling means a lot to some of us. And so for me, you know, the death of the Bulldog at the time and now 20 years later it's very impactful because he was truly somebody who was at the center of everything that I really tuned in to watch wrestling for, for, you know, five or six years there. Apparently a comeback was planned, um, but obviously that never materialized. So Adam, uh, I'll just turn the forum over to you. Just spend, you know, five or 10 minutes, just your, your thoughts and your memories of, of the bulldog and, and what he meant 
to you because I know that on your side of the pond, uh, he's one of the more important guys that really ever laced up the boots. Yeah. Um, so on the Facebook page, I do most of the updates. And so obviously I did uh, on the in, I did the in timeline uh, obituary of the Bulldog, which is which is a hard one to do because unfortunately the guy, like you said, had so many of his own demons. It's a case. It's, I found the same thing when I did Scott Hall a couple of months ago. Um, there is so much stuff in there that's impacted because of what they did. Um, I mean, for me, uh, it wasn't until the attitude era that I really started getting into into wrestling. So. I caught up a lot of like the old Bulldog stuff on tape. So I'd be, I'd be, I remember getting like the first SummerSlam where they had that match with the Rougeos and a couple of like the Heart Foundation matches on tapes. And, uh, and of course the, the infamous SummerSlam match, uh, where, you know, it's the, it's like the only pay-per-view of any note that's ever come from this country prior to the one that's due to happen in September. And that match for me is, I think it's had the same impact on me that like the Savage Steamboat had on like the generation that would have come before me. Just watching those two guys just have that caliber of match. It's a case of can't every, can't, why can't all matches be this good? That for years, that was like, the, I would always say that was my favorite match I've, it's been a while since I've. I, it's been a while since I watched it, where I've kind of taken like a bit of a, a hot step back from the business the last few years. But just, uh, the way that storyline, like the interviews, is just something that just led so naturally into the match and just the aftermath, and it was just so perfectly put together. Even, um, especially around that time you had so many sort of gimmicky characters on that card because um, like the VHS copy I had is not the same as the version on the network it actually had the full the full card which had so it started off I think with like a six man which featured Tax or Duggan and the Bushwhackers against someone and there was like three or four matches that led up to I believe the opener that is on the network is the boss man nail is the uh, nails virgil match so amongst the kooky characters there you know seeing these two guys just have that solid match really drew me in um but yeah i i did so when i started getting getting into it you know seeing the bulldog in jeans was just such a weird sort of culture shock um it was yeah, because it, it just wasn't the same guy. And doing this project, I actually ended up covering the WCW show where he infamously had that injury caused by the stupid trap door mechanism they had in the middle of the ring. And I actually remember watching the bump he took where, uh, where he actually injured himself. And it is one of those ones you don't sort of pick up for, on unless you know what's happening. And because I knew something happened in that match um, i mean it should have been a sign that they were supposed to be switching rings between each match and they didn't right. after that match that was but you actually 
But there is just because um, you know he's a consummate professional and he grew up in you know the tough world of world of sport before going over to do like the tough world of stampede wrestling in, in New Japan. You know he doesn't flinch, which actually something Raven once said to me is not selling an injury in a wrestling match is the weirdest thing ever because it just makes your job easier. Um, he really does not sell that that back injury in the match. Um, well, I, I remember at the end of that match because it was I think it was against Disco and, and Alex Wright and yeah. you know two two not two super heavy dudes and I remember Bulldog the finish of that match was a running powerbomb I think and Bulldog really struggled I think to get one of those two guys up and I think you know it wasn't so much of a sell but it was like in hindsight you watch that match and you realize this guy who would do the delayed on Vader and do the running powerball on Bigelow, like struggling to get up 230 pound Alex, right? Like clearly something was, was wrong there, but you're right. He did not sell it. Um, I mean, moving on with, with my journey in wrestling, I did uh, the first, I think it was five, or six, I was involved in the first five or six series of wrestle talk TV over here, which meant I actually got to work um, a time or two with, with Harry in Georgia um, who were always really super positive about their dad. I mean, obviously, I didn't. I was never gonna push about, you know, his his bad habits because why why would they need to relive that 15 years after it took it took him from them? But you know, they were they were such great people to work with. Um, in fact, one of the shows I, I filmed was a Rev Pro show in Beth in uh, York Hall in Bethnal Green. Uh, and it was featured uh, Harry te- teaming up with Andy Boy Simmons, who over here is one of the things he's known for is being such, is being a massive fan of the Bulldog, which is why he's called Andy Boy Simmons. Um, and it was just, and I remember just the look of joy on his face of being, you know, sharing um, a corner with with the son of his hero. It was a, just amazing to see that. Um, but yeah, it was. But yeah, I do remember hearing it. I mean, it was such big news over here. I actually remember hearing about it on actual proper news on the radio and on, on TV. And it's a case of when does that ever happen with like wrestling stuff? But because he was such a big deal over here, um, I actually put in the in the obituary I wrote on the Facebook page that the last time uh, Brian Dixon, the all-star promoter over here, made any money prior to the Attitude Era was was when he had the Bulldog for a couple of months as his top star because we, we loved him over here as on, on the WWF. And the fact that he was going, now going to be here permanently, we thought, you know, just drew these massive crowds. Um, for the, last, for the last few months of All-Stars 90s dominance before it sort of died down and started picking up again in the late 90s. Yeah, I think a true, like a true global wrestling star and not not someone yeah. who had, you know, really any extended runs with any meaningful world titles. I mean, always a guy that kind of floated mid-card, upper mid-card, could slot into the main event, slide back. But, you know, definitely a guy who had 
a massive impact on a lot of people and, and shows you that you don't need to be a world champion. You don't need to be the top guy. You don't need to be, you know, the person with the most screen time or the most mic time. If you have charisma and a look and a gimmick and you can go in the ring and you can connect with people, you're going to get over and you're going to have a good career. And 20 years after your passing, people are going to be talking about you. And I think, you know, I think us here is talking about this guy as we are. I think that in itself proves how meaningful he was to us and how meaningful he was to, to professional wrestling. And the fact that I listen to the October 1997 show, I believe it, um, it was either the September or the October show, where there's the one night only pay per view. You listen to right. how Rory reacts to that main event. Um, we've had, I've spoken to Rory a couple of times about this. We had we had a discussion the other day about what was the worst booking decision that year, and he claims it's that. I still argue that it was Sting um, at Starcade that year. But that that's beside the point. The point, the fact that you know, I know we're supposed to act like this is like we're in time machine mode, but the fact that he st- it still mattered that that much to him 20 years after the fact says a lot for the impact that the Bulldog had on, on him. The fact that he still felt that raw emotion for, for what Michaels uh, did for essentially no reason. And, I mean, it, it basically, I said earlier how the European title meant nothing at this point in the timeline, and it could arguably stem from that from that to nightmare, you know, because at least, because while when Bulldog held that title, it, yeah, it, technically it meant nothing, but he made it seem like it meant everything. Um, it's something we haven't really had since then. Um, and the fact that it gets deactivated in a couple of months says, you know, it, it, how little that it meant, means to, to the office at this point. Yeah, it was a it was a championship that I think could have meant something had they really let the bulldog run with it. But, you know, when they did that disastrous decision with Shawn Michaels, I think that negated, you know, even the relevancy of the belt. Why have a belt called the European title and not have it successfully defended in Europe by the European by the champion of Europe, who happens to be the most popular star of European descent in professional wrestling? It doesn't make any sense. But I think that aside, I think it goes to show that this guy meant a lot to a lot of people. And like Owen and like some of the other unfortunate passings we've had during our time here, I think it was important for us to step away, step out of timeline mode and really give the guy uh, his his credit because credit was definitely due. And he meant a lot to folks on your end of the pond and on mine and across the world. And I think it's going to be a different show without him. It has been for a couple of years. And the fact that you know, that 1997 core of the Hart Foundation is basically in our timeline is down to Brett and Anvil and either of them are really wrestling. And in our current world, we're down to Brett, who's really carrying the torch for all the hearts. The Bulldog gone way too soon, but definitely not forgotten. Yeah, I think we'll wrap up there. We've gone quite long, but I think uh, all justified uh, in our uh, in our time that we've spent here. Uh, I've been joined by uh, Adam Joyce. Adam, a wonderful contribution. This is always great discussion. Good look behind the scenes with everything that you've experienced. Uh, anything that you'd like to talk about or plug really quickly before we uh, shut the door on May of 2002? Um, like I said, I, I do 
post a lot on the Wrestling 20 Years Ago Facebook. Um, so yeah, if you, I post, I do play uh, history articles there. I did do one the other day on Shane Douglas, but I've accidentally deleted that. So that wasn't from pressure from management. Um, otherwise, the <laughs> otherwise the Wahoo one. No, that was just a really weird moment as having so yeah um uh you can uh, keep up with me on all the socials uh facebook and instagram i am el.j.comedy uh like share subscribe uh like and share all that stuff i even if it's just uh my monday morning memes try and make people start the week with a smile eight o'clock every monday um i'm also on twitter el underscore j and uh i do have a I have recently started a podcast of my own where basically I just scream into the void for 30 minutes. So if you want to hear me talk about gigs and politics and whatever just happens to be on my mind when I hit the record button, uh, it's called The Lonely... No, it's called The Long and Winding Road. Um, it's the most unoriginal name for a podcast because after I released the first episode, I discovered at least three others with the same. Mine is not the one that's talking about the Beatles. Mine's the one with, with a lovely picture of me and The Long and Winding Road next to my face. Um... Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that, that's me for now. Well, check that out. Thank you so much for sharing with that. Yeah, check that out for sure. Support all our contributors. Um, and uh, check us out specifically on Twitter, at Wrestling20YRS. And for Adam Joyce, I am Eric Landstrom. This has been May 2002 in the world of the world wrestling entertainment. And until next time, goodbye.